Ladies and gentlemen, welcome one and all to the final episode of Season 2 of Handcut Radio. I'm your host, Alex Svetkovich. Thank you for joining me as we continue our quest to discover why menswear matters. This week, I'm joined by none other than the co-founder of men's style institution, The Armoury, and co-owner of Drake's, Mark Cho. Mark's impact on independent menswear is huge, and his support for niche brands and talented craftspeople is humbling. He's worked non-stop for nine years to develop the Armoury into a leading international menswear emporium. And in this episode, I simply wanted to try to get inside the head of one of the smartest people in menswear. Our conversation is open, honest, and it's very interesting. Here is what I discovered. Mr. Mark Cho, thank you so, so much for being on the podcast. I am, I am absolutely thrilled that you are here. You've been, you've been um, requested repeatedly by our listeners as, as a personality to chat to. So thanks for agreeing to be a part of this. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Um, there is a huge amount to talk about and it's tricky to know where to start um but i i think something that a lot of listeners will be hopefully be interested in and i'm interested in because we've we've not really had a, a chance to chat properly before is how did the armory come to be so i guess this is a podcast i'll give you the long version the long version is um i have been into tailored clothing for a long long time i've been into tailored clothing since i was 16 and that came about because uh, my the school that I used to go to allowed you at 16 to wear your own suit rather than um, the school uniform. And, you know, seeing my father go to work every day in a suit and just generally being kind of interested in how a suit looked, I was very excited. And so I started to research suits, how do you wear suits, what are the rules, all that sort of thing. And as I, you know, this was pre-hashtag menswear, like this was back in the mid-90s. Um, so you had to go to the library, you had to ask people. And as I dug and dug and dug, I just found it incredibly interesting. Like the layers of rules, one on top of each other, sometimes contradictory, um, I thought were just kind of fascinating. And uh, that was kind of the genesis of a passion for tailoring um, that never really went away. You know, I um, have always been interested in tailoring, not, not necessarily like fashion or maybe even clothes to a certain extent, but tailoring like really is something that's very close to my heart. And uh, so after university, um, I used to work in women's wear very briefly. And then I used to work in real estate for quite a while, which eventually brought me to China, um, which was a difficult place to do that sort of work. Um, I kind of enjoyed it, but you know, after a couple of years of it, I was definitely ready to move on. And uh, actually, while I was in China, I was um, getting the opportunity to go to Hong Kong fairly regularly. So I would actually spend a lot of time um, with uh, WW Chan. Like I had placed an order, liked it. Um, the guys at the shop and I got along. So I would visit them and we would hang out and talk and whatnot. And eventually that turned into me helping set up um, WW Chan Hong Kong's London trunk show, um, which was, you know, an eye-opening experience and I really loved it. Like I've always loved being a merchant, like trading stuff is, I guess, in my blood to a certain extent. And um, so I loved helping them be a salesman during those trunk shows. And eventually they said, do you want to help us put together like a little accessories corner for the shop? So I said, yeah, of course. And that's actually how I got to, um, got more close to Drake's because they were the supplier for W. Chan's accessories department. Um, 
And then they asked me to uh, help them find a new shop site. So Hong Kong is split into two sides. Um, so there's the Kowloon side and the Hong Kong side. And uh, they're on the Kowloon side, but actually the majority of their customers are on the Hong Kong side. So they said, hey, can you help us find a spot on the Hong Kong side? I said, yeah, of course. And I kind of reached out to some of my real estate contacts and looked at a few sites. And eventually I found one that I thought was just fabulous for them. Um, it was in the Petter building and it was right above central uh, MTR station. Um, the building wasn't much. Like back then, the building was... Um, you know, kind of forgotten. Uh, it was a lot of factory outlets. At one point, there were problems with people selling like pirated goods out of that building. <laughs> um, eventually, it became, it got a little bit of traction in the art world because Ben Brown's gallery um, located there. And I just thought when I went in, it was such a charming building. It was such a good space, um, like super high ceilings, very good location that I said, you guys should take this. Like, and it'll be pretty cheap, and I think you should take a punt on it. And, you know, they thought about it, and they hemmed and hawed. And in the end, they decided uh, not to go through with it. They decided to just stay in their Kowloon store. Um, and then about a year later, um, when I was kind of ready to leave my job in real estate in China, um, I had been friends with Alan C for a while. Alan and I actually both were WW Chan customers. And Alan was actually thinking about leaving his job. Um, so I said, we should do something together. Um, and that is kind of how the Army started. Uh, we actually took the shop site that was originally intended for WW Chan, and we asked them if we could work as their representatives um, on Hong Kong side. So actually, the initial batch of Army customers were all WW Chan customers because they were um, people who were coming to us to um, place orders, pick cloths. Um, we would organize fittings for them. So a fitter from Chan Kowloon would come over to Hong Kong to see the customers. Um, and we'd organize their pickups and deliveries and whatnot as well from Hong Kong side. Um, so that was like a great boost for our little store, which was really buried upside, uh, upstairs of this old building. And unless you knew we were there, you just wouldn't really stumble upon us. Um, so yeah, that was kind of the, the start of the armory. Um, and you, so you literally went from being a customer with an interest in clothes to kind of almost overnight going, do you know what? I'm going to sell clothes. I can do this. Did you ever, I mean, what was your, what was the kind of mental process that to make that switch? Well, I think it was the London trunk show that probably gave me more confidence about the whole thing. Like I realized that I really liked selling clothes. I just thought it was very interesting. And I um, obviously already liked the clothes, but I realized I could also do the selling part. Cool. Mm. And how many years ago was that then? That was 2010. Oh, yeah. 2010 was the founding of the Armory. And it's worth adding also. So Ethan Newton, who now has Bryceland's and is doing an amazing job with that, Ethan actually joined us on the first day. Um, and he was the one who actually helped a lot with setting up the store. Because Alan and I were not retailers, um, but Ethan had a very strong retail background. So he actually helped a lot with like merchandising the store and like showing us just like, I guess like day-to-day -day stuff that we wouldn't have necessarily had experience with. So we often credit Ethan as like part of the founding team. Awesome. Mm. Props to Ethan. Yeah, absolutely. He happened to be passing through Hong Kong. He was fresh out of leaving his job in Australia because he used to work for um, a company called, I think it was Herringbone. Um, and then he was kind of just traveling around the region seeing what might be available for his next step in his career. 
Awesome. Mm. So we we jump forward nine years, and the armory is kind of you know the mothership. It is it is a emporium against which all others should be judged. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and uh, how I guess there are two things to, to unpick there. The first is how have you built the armory to be such a successful business? And the second thing is why do you think the armory is is so successful nine years on? Um. I think that the fact that we started in Hong Kong made a huge difference uh, because by starting in Hong Kong, you have an audience that is very receptive to tailored clothing, needs tailored clothing for day-to-day business because you know people tend to dress a little bit more conservatively in the working environments in Hong Kong. Um, something that I actually didn't realize uh, or something that I was worried about but ended up working out in our favor was you know we sell things like Oratsu Luciano at that time, for about two and a two to two and a half thousand euros for a, for a jacket, or yeah, about two thousand euros for a jacket, and you know Hong Kong is known for cheap and cheerful tailoring, and I was sort of wondering, oh man, are we going to be able to sell this? You know, is it going to be too expensive compared to like local competition? But actually, happily, what ended up happening was that. Because Hong Kong people are so used to having cheap and cheerful tailoring and they've tried so many things with their local tailors, they actually have a little bit more of a sensitivity to tailoring than people in other places. Like they just get, oh, soft structure actually feels quite different or, oh, like mm, like small changes in the lapel shape um, are a little bit more noticeable to them. I, I'm curious to kind of get a little bit deeper into the formula that you think has made the armory so successful what do you think you kind of bring to the table that that has allowed the armory to remain such a kind of valued store um i think it's a lot of little little things um we in terms of product right like we try to stay as classic as possible um it's never like classic with a twist or anything like that like no it's just we try to keep it classic like there's something about the tastes in classic menswear, the proportions especially um, in classic menswear, that always looks good. And there's always guys who understand that actually that is very much like the apex of a man's wardrobe. Like you should always have a couple pieces of classic clothing in your wardrobe. Um, so the fact that we've like stuck to that, I think has been quite helpful. Um, since very early on, we always tried to be um, a relationship store. And maybe this is because our background, our roots were, was, you know, in conjunction with WW Chan, a bespoke tailor, right? Like you are not a quick sale sort of business. You are a slow burn, like someone will come in once or a few times a year to place orders sort of business. So you try to maintain good, friendly relationships with all of your customers, you know, and you don't try to hard sell anything. And actually we even structured the company um, very early on to not pay individual commissions. So we pay actually a group commission to everybody who works in the store um, whenever a sale is made so that nobody is like, oh, I got to close the sale, I got to close the sale. Because for us, like the long-term relationship is much, much more important. And a happy um, accident out of having a good long-term relationship like that is that you can cross-sell a lot better. So, you know, it's like once you've built a good relationship and um, your customer trusts your taste, you have the option to suggest a lot more things than the average clothing store might. And that's kind of slowly how we expanded into like really good denim or um, vintage watches um, or 
I don't know. I guess that's kind of why we can sell a lot of fairly esoteric things that, you know, if you were to go into it blind, you might feel a little uncomfortable, but because we're kind of there backing it up, underwriting it and saying and standing by it, I think it, it enables a lot more craft type commissions to be made and the, so the armory has really sort of become an educational resource for customers as much as it's become a, a menswear hub yeah to a certain extent i mean we're all product people at the shop like you know people work at the armory um because they really really love the product and uh i never try to get in the way of people's tastes um so there's no like prescribed oh you must dress like this at the armory it's sort of like if you work at the armory um, you have access to anything you want at the armory, um, but you should figure out what's the best way to represent yourself using this clothing. Like one of my favorite stories is when a few years ago when we were doing our team portrait, um, I just told the guys, hey, guys, tomorrow morning, team portrait, um, dress up for it. And I didn't have to say anything more than that. And everyone showed up like looking like an armory guy. But not like photocopies of each other like they all looked like their own men wearing our clothes it was great wicked yeah yeah what and what a cool kind of um what a cool thing to aim for yeah um now let's let's stick with this a little bit because you 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 mentioned in passing uh, that you are all product guys mm. at the store um i think you in particular are a product guy uh, I loved our, our walkthrough a couple of afternoons ago because I, for context listeners, I've, I've never been to the armory before, so it was my first time. And actually, the, the amount of time and energy that you personally seem to spend on developing product that just fits in, in a, it goes that extra mile to fit and feel good and sort of feel natural on the body really impressed me. Thank you. Uh, how much time and energy do you devote just to geeking out over product? I mean, I think of the hours I work, maybe half would probably be spent on product development. Really? Yeah. I mean, sometimes just paperwork, too, and, like, coordinating (laughs) stuff. Um, But, yeah, I'm very intimately involved um, with the product. Like, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example of, like, how the Armory shoes came together because that was, like, probably our most complicated project and one that I actually really enjoyed. So what happened with the Armory Shoes is that actually started life as, um, you know, Yohif Kuda and I, who is an amazing shoemaker, mm. and I recommend anybody get a pair of shoes from him. Um, Yohe and I have become good friends. And I was saying to him, listen, I would love to do like an entry level price point shoe with you. Um, and, you know, it can be under your brand and we can... Um, and let's see what happens. I think it should be a Japanese-designed and Japanese-made shoe um, with your brand on it. He said, okay, let's let's work on that. So we spent almost a year um, working on the concept of it, uh, the price points of it, and the factories uh, that could potentially do it. And we sampled a lot of stuff in Japan. And surprisingly, um, the Japanese factories at that entry-level price point of about 500 US dollars uh, was was actually not like it it just wasn't ticking the boxes for us like something about the product was not quite right um and it was making yohei kind of uncomfortable and yohei didn't really want to put his name on something that he wasn't fully comfortable with which i totally sympathize with sure. you know i mean this is why we work with craftsmen like that because if they don't think it's right they just don't let it out the door um so then i said well listen how about uh if it's going to be a little bit more experimental 
how about we put the armory's name on it instead, you know? And then like the onus is less on you to be like the the figurehead for this product if you're feeling nervous about, oh, is this product can go right or wrong? And so he agreed to that. And then we actually started working, looking at British factories. Um, Yohei trained in Tresham, uh, and he spent a lot of time in the shoemaking industry in the UK working with, um, I worked with Gaziano, I worked with Cleverly. He worked with, it was either Lob or Edward Green, I forget now off the top of my head. Everyone by the sounds of it. Yeah, I mean, he like he has a portfolio of all the repairs that he used to do for Cleverly, which is a beautiful archive of like Cleverly shoes, you know, old, old pairs that have come back that he did the restorations restored. on. Yeah. Phenomenal. Um, and uh, yeah, it clicked, you know, like we went to this factory in Northampton. Um, they liked us, we liked them. Uh, and so the next step was to create a last uh which you know is a huge investment actually because a lot of people think that oh you make a last and like that's it no when you got to go to production you need to make several hundred lasts in order to get your shoes produced in any sort of timely manner so after we'd finalized the last i had to order i think it was like 300 pairs um in different sizes uh it's quite a big order it was quite a big like it was quite a big upfront cost um but you know we really wanted to get into having our own brand of shoes, especially working with Yohei. So, you know, it was just, that's just one of those things. But it was, it was a little nerve-wracking committing to a last. Um, and we learned a lot along the way. Um, so, for instance, like with the first last, uh, Yohei was used to dealing with bespoke lasts. But the thing is with bespoke lasts, A, they are going to be um, hand, um, hand-lasted. So that means that the upper, the leather upper, is going to be pulled onto the last a little bit tighter than by machine. So you can capture a lot more of the curvature of the last um, if you're going to hand-last it. Secondly, the counters, the structural pieces inside the shoe, you know, on the heel, in the toe, on the sides, like those are thicker in production shoes than they are in bespoke shoes. So by the time you've added these um, little issues up, like a bespoke last will often look very blobby if they were, if you tried to turn it into a ready to wear shoe using ready to wear techniques. So we actually had to remake the entire last um, with a ready to wear shoe in mind. And that was, um, that was an interesting learning experience, like seeing what could and could not be done. I mean, the nice thing about working with bespoke is like to a certain extent, the sky's the limit, but you know, when you need to engineer something for, um, ready to wear, like a lot of these rules change. Um, so it was a great learning experience for me. I loved it. Um, and then we worked on the styles, which took several iterations before we finally released it. And actually, this is something we don't talk about so much, but after we released it, Yohei and I, every time we have a trunk show, we sit down and we look at all the um, all the styles, uh, not just like style by style, but also across all the sizes. Because when you do grading, um, you might notice something off with the grading uh, for extreme sizes or uh. even like intermediate sizes um, later on. And you know, luckily we laser cut all of our uppers. We don't die cut it, so we can make these small adjustments to the pattern. So a size twelve or UK twelve might have a, a minute kind of difference to a size nine. And yeah, you can just ref- just tweak it a little bit. Yeah, like um, for instance, the toe puff on a size twelve. If you were to follow normal grading. Um, might be a little bit too short, a little bit too long. So, you know, we look at 
the shoe holistically and we need to make sure the balance stays in like the proportions stay in balance so we make that adjustment Uh, that's a really really useful um sorry i'm pouring water here that's all good (laughs) atmosphere atmosphere (laughs) listeners um uh really really interesting case study for just how much you think about your product um and uh, i love the way that you can kind of apply that to everything but i also wanted to touch on your philosophy and on the kind of growth philosophy that I think underpins the armory because uh, much like um, uh, if we go right back to the start of this season Mike Hill sort of said that he's he Drake's is has taken 10 years to grow at a healthy rate and not run before it can walk you've kind of done the same thing with the armory right you're not interested in rapid growth for the sake of it yeah, the Armory is an extremely personal project to me, and um, in in many ways, both from a customer standpoint and also from a staff standpoint, like I like being able to go to work and knowing everybody's name and knowing, you know, everyone I work with well and being able to be friends with everybody. Um, and I like being able to be in touch with like a lot of my good customers who become friends. You know, we spend a lot of time together socially as well. Um, and I want to maintain that. Like, I don't think you can maintain that if you have many, many stores. Like, I think, like for me, an armory is an armory because I can go there regularly and be present there. You know, like if you wanted to, like, have me help you on the shop floor, um, if I'm in the basement in the office, like I'll come up and I'll help you. It's no problem. Or like. You'll probably see me on the shop floor anyways, sometimes in the Hong Kong store, because I just I just like dealing with customers, seeing our customers, seeing how they're reacting. And, um, you know, this all goes back to how our product develops. Like if you don't know your customer in that way, like you don't, then you're not necessarily developing for uh, for a known audience. And, you know, like it's a different approach to clothing. Like fashion is much more about you have a vision, you dictate it, and you hope people are inspired by it and they buy into it. Whereas for us, it's a little more needs-based. For us, it's a little bit more like, ah, I kind of need this, or I know that customer needs that, and so let's see if we can put something together like for those guys. Love it. Um, a slightly sort of um, contrarian question for you. Where do you think menswear brands go wrong? Is it in chasing aggressive growth? Is it not being able to maintain an experience that is personal enough. What what do you think the the pain points are for for a menswear brand? That one is a hard one for me to answer. Actually, a because I prefer to stay diplomatic. I mean, at the end of the day, like I don't know the situations at other brands. Um, I think that growth in general is something that you have to be a little bit wary of. Um, like you, if you are going to grow, you're probably going to have to make some trade-offs um and if you are willing to make those trade-offs then so be it that's fine but i don't think um you should really delude yourself into thinking that you can do very fine high craft and have 500 stores like that's just not possible it doesn't add up you know like the people to make those things are just not that numerous Mm. fair dues well thank you mark i admire your diplomacy Uh, Forgive me for interrupting, lovely people, but we've got one more message to share with you this season. 
Given that we've started to take sponsorship on the podcast, we thought it might be nice to do something a little different and dedicate the final sponsorship slot of the series to a charity, one that all of us here at Handcut Radio are very much behind. Suited and Booted is based in the City of London and makes a big difference to people in need. The charity styles men who need a helping hand for job interviews with good quality interview clothes to help boost their confidence and find employment. They offer interview advice too. Suited and Booted styles former servicemen, ex-offenders, mental health recovery clients, care leavers, the long-term unemployed, the homeless, the poorly housed and any individual who needs a helping hand into the world of work. Candidates have to be actively searching for work and are referred to the charity through government organisations and other charities so you can be sure that they're serious about getting back onto the ladder. Over 50% of the guys they dress succeed in finding employment and they're kitting out dozens of deserving individuals every month. Plus, the charity runs entirely on donations. They are in desperate need of good quality suits, cufflinks, interview shirts and accessories like ties, belts, pocket squares, suit bags and especially formal shoes. The lot, they need it. The quality of donations matters too. These clothes are for guys interviewing for jobs that will change their lives. Donations need to be good quality, in good condition and dry cleaned or freshly laundered. But please do check out what they're doing. And if you'd like to donate clothes or much needed funds, visit suitedbootedcentre.org.uk. You can donate from within the UK or from overseas. Let's face it, if you're into menswear, you own nice clothes. Normally, more than you need. Whenever I have a clear out, I try to take my clothes there because I know they're going to a good cause. Please consider donating either clothes or much needed cash. The charity doesn't get a lot of exposure and Suited and Booted is showing real kindness to people who've been through some very tough times. Thank you, as always, for listening. Now I'll let you get back to your podcast. You strike me uh, as a very thoughtful individual. Um, sitting here and listening to you is, 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 is a very kind of refreshing experience for me, actually. I'm really enjoying it. Oh, thank you. And uh, that leads me to want to sort of ask, how, how does Mark Cho make decisions? You know, how did, I, I'm sort of curious to understand some of the, the things that have motivated you along the way and, and some of the decisions you've had to make over the years and how you approach building or have approached building your business i have to say like i don't have a very rigorous system in many ways i am not nearly rigorous enough um i think that it's important to have some principles and just to try and stick by those you know but i do find myself doing things that are out of line with the principles or irrational frequently like it's just part of my nature and my lack of self-discipline um at the very least, I think that if there's some sort of decision that needs to be made that hinges around, like, is this product going to get better or worse? Or is this customer going to get treated better or worse? Like, we will always just hew to, like, even if we have to lose a little bit of money on it, the product should be better, the customer should be more happy. Like, so that's been a pretty good guiding force for us. Um, I guess, like, decisions that I've made that maybe didn't pan out well. I don't know why I'm focusing on the negative. I guess I'm just like that. It's just, it's just interesting to reflect, right? Yeah, it is interesting to reflect. Um, like, that's something that I think every 
business, everybody who's in charge of stuff has to try and do is like, think about why you made a decision and reflect on it, whether it went good or bad after the fact, you know, and be honest with yourself and be like, ah, that was kind of a dumb move. I probably (laughs) didn't really have to do that. You know, like we've had many attempts at pop-ups before, uh, many expensive attempts, really. And I would say like the pop-ups have probably underperformed, um, but we've gotten better at them as well. So we continue to try and like take that tack and see where it goes. Um, This is now really like going on a tangent, but I realized after doing a bunch of pop-ups that the armory is very much about the environment as well. The environment is something that I am very close to. Um, I work on all the shop designs with my old middle school classmate and actually her professor as well. And, you know, I know our environments intimately. And the minute you do a pop-up, you no longer have that sort of control over your environment. And it, you know, it, it affects the way that um, customers are going to perceive your product. It affects how people are going to behave in that environment. Um, so I've, I've become a lot more picky about like when and where we could do a pop-up. And actually, uh, like we're, we do a lot of like direct customer reach out instead. So rather than like trying to do a pop-up, if we happen to be in a city where we know we have a few customers, we will just give them a ring. Let's go have a drink. Let's have a chat. Do you need anything? Do you want to, do you want to see anything? And then we'll just lug it along with us. Wicked. Mm. That's a really, really interesting way of approaching that. Um, and an interesting learning, I guess. Yeah. Um, expensive way to learn but yeah yeah, yeah. Um, I think everyone has a has an expensive way to learn along the way I was actually saying to uh, one of my editors yesterday I've just been through a six-week patch of producing a load of shoots for brands uh, and uh, my god was that a learning experience mm. I'm not going to dwell on that too much here but uh, it nearly broke me Jesus. so uh, well, I'm glad you're still with us uh, bless you mm. <laughs> so you know there's a learning for me to take into 2020 I um, think just to add though if there was one thing I would say about um, about decision making uh, Ray Dalio who as the founder of Bridgewater Associates wrote a great book called Principles um, that I've been really getting into uh, and I would recommend anyone who wants to learn more about decision making um, have a good look at that book uh, because Ray is extremely disciplined, extremely rigorous, and he systemized a lot of um, things around his decision making, which I think really helped. Not only systemized, but he also iterated it. You know, so he tried it; it didn't work. He'd make adjustments and try it again, and try it again, and try it again. And you know, that's an approach that I really admire. Um, I think, like when I read his book, I basically think, "Oh my god, I really don't have my shit together." Like, I don't know if I'll <laughs> ever have my shit together to a to an extent that that guy has his shit together. So it's quite humbling to read a book like that that's awesome yeah and i guess you, your brain either does does one of two things in those situations and you have to always go towards i think the, the former option which is to go wow that guy's amazing i have got to keep going and try and get closer to this guy but what i've found is i've been self-employed over the last eight months is the two voices in your head are always wow this is inspiring i've got to keep going or oh my God, I've, how can I possibly get near mm. that level of success or that level of achievement or whatever it might be? Mm. Um, it's so interesting uh, how our brains like to try and destabilize us. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, indeed. Now, I, mean, I suppose it's some sort of evolutionary uh, mechanism, right? Where 
you always need to be a little bit paranoid so you don't get eaten by a bear or something like that. Right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and somehow that still applies to menswear yeah. <laughs> today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I wanted at this point to broaden the conversation out a little bit. The bear are low-rise pants, by the way. Uh, but exactly, yeah, yeah, he would be in low-rise pants. Yeah. Uh, that, that would be a problem for me. <laughs> uh, no pleat. Um, now, uh, you, you have many other interests as well, and I thought it might be nice to touch on a few of these. Um, some some of our listeners who who follow you on Instagram may have picked up on your rather intriguing technology <laughs> reviews, as have I. Um, I love the fact that every now and then there'll be a little Insta story, maybe a three part <laughs> Insta story about a kind of a piece of technology that I had never even knew existed, and you'll be able to give a really insightful take on your experience with it. Where does the, this interest in tech come from? Um, I don't know. I always I always just like technology. Like growing up. I was always around computers. I loved computers. I loved video games. I almost ended up being a computer scientist at Imperial, actually. Um, and then I kind of, like, the only reason I didn't go to Imperial was because my house was near the university and it wouldn't give me a dorm and I didn't want to live with my parents anymore. Oh, right. <laughs> um, so I, uh, and then I had the opportunity to go to the U.S. But anyway, that's a, a whole other story. Um, but yeah, no, tech is fascinating. Uh, and, you know, I, I learned early on how to dismantle things, how to put things back together. And when you can do that sort of thing, like you get a little bit more appreciation into um, how much thought goes into everything. Cool. Mm. I mean, they are, yeah, I mean, I, me being, again, uh, a media lovey, I have absolutely no conception of how sophisticated. I find it very difficult to get my head around how sophisticated even something like, you know, an iPhone is or mm. a camera is. Mm. I just can't, I, ironically, I can't compute it in my own mind. It's not <laughs> how I think. Right. Um, but I, I find it very interesting that you, you, you get so much pleasure from these interesting pieces of technology and machinery. Yeah, I just like shiny things, you know. Cool. Can't help it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Analog is suits and digital is, uh, is video games. Yeah. I mean, you know, technology is a, is a you could say that Things like the iPhone, think like very sophisticated technology is a form of craft unto itself too, right? Like you really need a lot of research and development to allow something like the iPhone to even exist, you know? Not just from Apple, but from all those sub-suppliers, um, from all the manufacturers who have to engineer it and actually make it like a producible product in mass. You know, it's incredible. Okay, watches. Watches, yeah. Another passion of yours. Yeah. Um, I... I'm very intrigued to just generally learn a little bit more about why watches do it for you because I've been trying for years to get into watches and I haven't managed to convince my brain that they're interesting yet. Um, what is it that appeals about, about fine watches to you? Well, when I first got into it, I think it was because it appealed to me in the same way that jewelry appeals to some people, right? Like I notice you wear rings. Like I don't wear anything but a watch and the watch is my only piece of jewelry it is like my kind of shiny blingy slightly expressive thing that i like to wear um but then as i learned more about it um i started to really appreciate a lot of things that go into movement design and how a watch is mechanically assembled and put together um, and I actually started taking watchmaking class because I'm in New York pretty frequently and Horological Society in New York has a great set of classes um, teaching you how to dismantle and reassemble a movement and then going into like other aspects um, such as the gear train, um, the setting at the crown. Uh, you know, it's 
I think once you get to play with these things in a once you get to dismantle and reassemble these things you really start to get appreciation of like oh wow there's both quite a lot to it but also um, not as much as you thought what I mean is that there's complexity there um, you have built on the learnings and the knowledge of previous generations who've learned how to make this thing for you uh, but you also realize like oh a lot of things are kind of not commodity um, but they're standardized you know like your gear, tra- gear train needs so many wheels your escapement needs to be roughly like this right like the simple the the, the principles are actually quite clear once you've once you understand them um, and then you realize holy moly like all these different companies have basically taken these principles and then put their own spin on it endlessly and it's amazing how many variations they managed to come up with yeah you know and i mean it just occurred to me it that is kind of like menswear right like i like the fact that classic menswear is basically a framework like i like the idea that menswear is you got to have a shirt you got to have a tie you got to have trousers and a jacket and leather shoes right but there's endless ways to put that together and every country has their own spin on it and even every individual has their own spin on it i love that i think that's amazing in in terms of uh, whether it's clothing or watches are you are you into the rules and studying the rules or are you into breaking the rules which which sort of side of the line do you fall on um i don't pursue either one uh i think it's always nice to know the rules i like rules you know rules allow you to get through a situation without having to think too hard about it because a lot of times like situations don't necessarily need that much attention from you um to break the rules i think is actually much more difficult requires a lot more thought um but i'm also kind of a low-key person so i don't really want to like obviously break a rule for the sake of being able to say i broke this rule look at me you know Cool. Okay. Mm. Fair enough. I, I am slowly learning not to break the rules <laughs> in, in in that way, yeah. and not to turn up wearing you know pink velvet jackets to uh, <laughs> very conservative black tie functions, for example. Mm. Now, um, I'm going to as we start to wrap up a little bit, I'm going to bring things back around to the armory. Sure. Um, you're spending quite a lot of time at the moment developing new sportswear models, yeah, um, and daywear, more yeah. sort of relaxed casual wear. Yeah. Uh, why? Um. Because I think our customers are looking for something that is, you know, not suit and tie, uh, and we wanted to kind of try and apply our understanding and our tastes for classic menswear into um, casual wear. You know, like I think our customers do appreciate it and do appreciate our take on what would the weekend wardrobe look like. Um, also, you know, I am kind of a paranoid person and uh, I'm always well aware that many great menswear stores have come and gone in the past you know the minute the economy or the cultural zeitgeist goes a certain way people stop wearing suits and then stores like for instance Silka disappear right so I don't want that to happen to us and I think it's important for us to have a somewhat diverse portfolio of products you know that people might go away from suits but they could potentially rely on our sportswear i also think that um people need people need to have some sort of casual wear that is not so casual that they can't wear it to work like what you're going to wear to work to look professional that's not 
tailored clothing, I think that is an important question that needs to be answered. Um, and that's something that I'm very interested in and I'm trying to kind of work on in the background. Mm, mm. Really interesting. A couple more questions off that then. Sure. Um, I've asked a lot of people as we've kind of gone through the podcast whether they think the suit as we know it is in trouble and everyone has a different opinion on this. I'm just curious to know whether you think that the suit is in trouble or not. No, I think the suit is... uh, I think the suit is actually finally inching towards what I think is the, 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 the greatest understanding of a suit. Like, to me, the most important part of a suit that I think everyone forgets is that the jacket and trousers match. That's a suit. There's nothing else more to it than the jacket and the trousers are in the same cloth, right? So if you can get past the um, rules about formality, the stigma of like, oh, this is too formal for blah, blah, occasion, and just appreciate for the fact that you have this nice um, garment on that has a matching top and bottom, you can do a lot more with it. And I think people are starting to understand that. And that's why you're starting to see like suits in more unusual fabrics, more unusual colors. Um, Like for instance, cotton suits are now really starting to pick up, um, not just at the Armory, but like it seems uh, worldwide. Uh, Mm. And I think that's great. Like I think that's the sort of thing that will keep the suit a staple in men's wardrobe. Love it. Um, I think that's a really that's a really refreshing answer, uh, and I guess similar to my own thinking. Interestingly, I wrote a little piece for the Jackal that came out last week about the rise of the chore suit and the kind of matching work jacket or chore jacket, and then maybe like corduroy chinos, and they're both in the same corduroy. Mm. And the conclusion I came to that a few people have sort of said they didn't expect was that I'm really into that. Because if you can stop wearing an absolutely crap, boring suit that you've flogged to death on the tube for five years uh, as a part of your kind of midtown uniform and transition towards something a bit cooler for a smart casual or a business casual dress code, and in doing so, the lounge suit has this resurgence as this really, really elegant personality-led garment that you really enjoy wearing outside of the office... Surely that's a win-win. Mm, yeah, um, it's a it's a really interesting way of of thinking about it. Mm. I hope that comes to pass. Um, what product are you proud of at the moment? Then in the armory, what 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 do we? What few things do we have to look at first when we all rush to the armory website? Um, every collection we do for tailored uh, is pretty interesting. You know, it, it takes us a long time to put those collections together. So we usually start assembling the tail clothing collection um, about nine months to a year in advance. And it's a mixture of um, fabrics from different mills, stuff we've developed ourselves, and also potentially like new models of tailoring that we've worked on. Um, so like the last model of tailoring that I worked on um, is the Model 11, which is this... You know, I wanted to make a jacket that was for people who didn't necessarily wear tailoring regularly, but they wanted to have something that had the tailoring flavor to it. So I went back to looking at like, uh, you know, I love like Ivy Ivy style clothing. Like I work with Taylor Cade for this reason. So I wanted to make something that had a lot of Ivy flavor, um, but you know, that you could wear in a very casual way. Uh, and so it's a dartless, fairly straight cut jacket with uh, kind of more decorated, 
pockets, three patch, um, and the two at the hip have flaps. Uh, I'm pretty proud of that one. We try to release that every season now. Um, the other thing that I'm really happy with is this little blues on that we designed uh, called the three PB, you know, the three pocket blues on. And um, we initially released it in linen, but actually we've sourced for fall winter this really great Japanese canvas uh, that's actually normally used for, um, it's actually normally for industrial use, so it's quite tough. Um, but, you know, it feels good, looks good, uh, and it will come in a very nice shade of kind of khaki. Uh, and, you know, if you ask your friendly armory salesperson, uh, we can actually make those to order too. So if you are someone who is especially tall or short, um, or especially long or short arms or anything like that, like we can actually take that into account and just make one for you. Awesome. Yeah. That's super cool. When, when is that landing? Uh, three PBs are on the website in linen, and the cotton canvas one is probably end of this month. Brilliant. Yeah. That's exciting. Um, I had one last question just off the back of that answer. Mm-hmm. Um, Ivy style in, in various different forms in various parts of the planet seems to be having a bit of a moment. Mm. Um, the French Ivy look in Europe seems to really be taking off at the moment. Mm. Um, what is it that, that, that you find so satisfying about Ivy, Ivy style? It's very... Um, I feel like Ivy style is basically the old world's version of normcore, right? Like it's very everyman, it's very democratic. Um, there, in some ways, there aren't even that many ways to wear it. You know, it's sort of like madras shirt, khaki, navy blazer, and, a, and you're, you've done it, right? Um, but I like that, like it's quite freeing in, in from that perspective. It's sort of almost uh, a stylish uniform of sorts, isn't it? Exactly. It's a formula that works. Yeah. Cool. Exactly. You know, and also I like the proportions. Like I like that it's a little bit fuller and it's really um, not meant to make you feel especially dressed up. Although I think these days when people see anyone in a jacket and a tie, they will automatically feel like they're dressed up. So it actually kind of works even better in in contemporary society because you look like you are dressed up, but actually you feel like you're you know, free and easy. Yeah, mm. a relaxed way to dress up. Mm. I like that. Wonderful. Well, Mr. Cho, uh, here endeth the interview. Thank you very, very much indeed for taking some time out. It no, has been all. a real privilege to have a conversation and learn a little bit more about you. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you. My pleasure being on the show. Good luck with it. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Roll on 2020. There you go. Dear listeners, I am greatly saddened to say that this is it for season two of Handcut Radio. I so hope you've continued to enjoy the podcast, and I'd like to take a moment to say how genuinely humbled all of us on the team are by the response we've had. Your constructive feedback, your kind comments, and your enthusiasm each week has been incredibly uplifting, and the pod has grown way quicker than we expected. Without your support and your shared passion for menswear, this project simply wouldn't exist. So thank you very, very much. I also owe a huge thank you to this podcast producer, London and New York-based creative agency, Birch. This project would not have happened without their support and their willingness to take a punt on a geeky journalist with a big mouth. Check out the agency at thinkbirch.com. The same goes to our sound editor, Joe Boyd, who toils away every week fine-tuning our recordings to make podcast episodes that are as smooth to listen to as his wonderful theme music. 
Follow him at This Is Joe Boyd. Season 3 will be back in January 2020, but between now and then, keep your eyes peeled for some bonus material. We're going to play around with a few different things to bridge the gap, so please do keep checking our Instagram feed for news. Now, let me leave you with one final massive thank you and a few final pearls of wisdom from Mr. Cho. We'll see you again very, very soon. Mr. Cho, quickfire time, our last quickfire of season two. Um, my first question, would you do anything differently? No. Easy peasy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you, you make mistakes along the way, but you learn from them, they become part of your experience, and you build on them, right? So, you know, even the things that I maybe shouldn't have done or I regret doing, well, I, I don't regret them, like, because I, I feel like I got something out of it, too. Brilliant. Um, who else do you respect in the industry? I always have a soft spot for our Armory alumni. Um, so people like Jake Grantham, Alex Baronis, Ethan Newton. Um, you know, I think they've gone on and done really interesting things, uh, you know, with their own vision. Um, I also always have a soft spot for Japanese fashion entrepreneurs back in the 60s and 70s. You know, like people like Kamoshita-san, Kurino-san, um, Kaga-san as well. Uh, these are guys who kind of against all odds made Japanese fashion what it is. Uh, you know, there was no rule, there was no guidebook, there was no preset plan. Um, it was very difficult to work with Italians as a Japanese person back then, kind of for race reasons. Uh, and those guys just stuck with it and made it into something, you know, like they, like they tell me stories sometimes about how they would just get a car, drive around the countryside and find a factory and then start working with it. And, you know, you, you pay a deposit and you kind of hope stuff turns up, but this is pre-email, this is pre-everything, like this is pre-fax even. So it was a big leap of faith. It was it was really like their balls were on the line and they they pulled it off. That's awesome. Yeah. Names to go, names for me to go and uh, go and look up. Yeah. Um, and then last, but by no means least, what advice would you give to someone who wants to do what you do? Uh, the easy one is to say don't do it. <laughs> but um, I think if you want to do what I do, and I see what I do as being a retailer, right, is I think you should obviously care a lot about the product, but you should also care very much about... Um, the salesmanship, the merchanting aspect of it. Like you need to learn how to sell things. You need to learn how to convince people that what you're doing is worth their money and worth their time. And you need to learn how to foster good relationships with people in order to make all of that happen. Brilliant. Well, uh, Mark, again, thanks so much for being our last interview of season two. No um, problem. Absolutely thrilled to have you on. Thank you. Thank you.